Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back in Colorado. Get a little nip in the air. Wow, pretty good. Uh, it's good to be back. I, uh, I've had a very busy year. A lot of things happening in ministry. When I was here last year, I had just gone through an experience that almost, I almost lost my life. And uh, <clears throat> I'd like to tell that story. I, I told past, Pastor Mario and Stacy last night a little bit about it. But in June last year, <clears throat> I got a phone call from the Minister of the Interior in Kurdistan. Kurdistan is a province inside of Iraq. And uh, the man who called me was a man I've known for years. He, he got one of my pastors out of jail when he was up for five years for, as a spy for Iran. And uh, <clears throat> Kareem Sinjari was on the phone. He says, Terry, I want you to come back to Kurdistan. He said, I want you to bring a bunch of pastors with you, and I want you to talk to our pastors here in Kurdistan. We want to declare Kurdistan as a safe haven for all Christians in the future, where they will be protected against Islam or anybody else in the Middle East. And he said, I would like you to head up the program for us, if you would, on behalf of the government. He said, I will introduce you to these leaders. I'll, I'll open the door, and uh, they will meet with you. And I'm talking leaders like evangelicals. Yes, there are some evangelicals in Iraq, but most Christians there are uh, the Syriac, the Catholic, the Orthodox. The, uh, they've been around forever. In fact, uh, Doubting Thomas opened a church in Iraq uh, as soon as Jesus uh, went to heaven and disciples spread out, he started the work in Iraq and in India. <clears throat> so that was quite an invitation. I didn't quite know how to handle it at first, but I said, I'm going to talk to some people, and I talked to a bunch of friends of mine and invited them to come. I invited Pastor Mario in uh, days gone by, and after I tell this story, he probably won't come with me, but... <clears throat> Excuse my throat, I'm having a little throat problem. Um, <clears throat> so we flew into Iraq in August last year, and uh, thanks. And we had opportunity of meeting with various leaders, spiritual leaders, and they... They were amazed at the opportunity the Lord had given me with Kareem Sinjari uh, to create a safe haven for Christians in, in their land. And as you know, they've all been persecuted. They've just gone through the terror of ISIS and uh, in Mosul and places like that. So while we were there, uh, we had an opportunity to come to go down to Mosul, the city of Mosul, which is the one city I want to see because it was taken over by uh, ISIS and uh, terrible damage done inside of Mosul. So uh, we, all 13 pastors, we had 13 of us, and we were given uh, government cars from the government's uh, uh, personal, the prime minister's vehicles, land cruisers, all black, and we had about <clears throat> 20 guards from the government with us, all of them carrying AK-47 machine guns. Um, my pastor friends were a little, they kind of looked at these guys and wondered what's going on here. And I really uh, couldn't tell them what was going to happen. We were just doing something. And... Uh, Anyway, we drove about 45 miles out of Erbil, which is the capital of Kurdistan. And we were stopped at a, a, a border crossing. It's kind of like a border, not really a full border, but it's a, it's a place where there were a bunch of young men. I found out later they were terrorists from Iran who had penetrated the Iraq border and were there on their own recognizance and... Uh, 
and they stopped our guards and they started to get into, uh, I saw one guy slug one of our guards and another one uh, gun butt guy in the face and stuff like this. I wasn't too concerned at first, but when they started to open fire, I got a little concerned. Uh, They started shooting machine guns. They all had machine guns. And by the way, I found out they were Iranians. They were probably under the influence of some kind of uh, drugs. And um, it was unbelievable to see them firing guns over our cars, and I'm watching the the bullets spit out of the magazine of the AK-47 hit the window right in my face. Uh, And the bullets are going up. Thank the Lord they went up and not sideways. But uh, then they moved in a 50-millimeter cannon. Uh, I mean, it was, things were not looking good. Uh, My brother-in-law said to my son, Jason, he said, Jason, you're young, you have two little kids. He said, I've raised my children. He said, if they open fire on the cars themselves, he said, you lay down on the floor and I'll lay on top of you. That's how close it was. We thought it was all time to go home, meet the Lord. Um, after about an hour, and I'm not even sure how it happened, but uh, we were allowed to leave the border crossing and turn around and go back to Erbil. We never did get to Mosul. But I, I remember when we had a, a time of kind of decompressing and talking about what had happened and, and how one pastor was with me said, Terry, I realize today that my work for God is not done. He said, it's thrilling to, for me to be alive and to be able to continue on. Uh, we're doing some things over there that nobody else does. Um, we've started a new home for widows and uh, for Yazidi widows, the ones who were persecuted by ISIS. 2,000 uh, widows were taken by ISIS. Uh, they were impregnated by soldiers. Uh, there are a lot of them having babies now and uh, the Yazidi Yazidi mothers do not want their daughters to raise children that are partly Muslim. And they, uh, they're they asking their daughters to kill their children. Uh, this, this is going on and we're in the middle of that. We're working with the home to rehabilitate the widows. And they are so open to the Lord. They just want to know Jesus. And when we bring people. We brought several folk from the States working over there. A couple of gals from Sweden are working with us and others, and we're just taking care of the poor. And uh, God has been good. And I want to say thank you to you as a church. I have been coming here for, I reckon, pastor said over 30 years. That's probably accurate. Uh, Sometime back in... uh, when Pastor Miller was here, it was the first time I came. And that's a long time ago, and you have supported me generously over the years. And we brought a video to show this morning a little bit of what, what we're doing in that part of the world. And uh, I'm gonna sit down here for a moment and we'll go ahead with the video and then I'm, I'm gonna preach in just a moment, thanks. World compassion empowers the local church in nations hostile to the gospel because we understand no nation is closed to the love of Christ. It's why we cross oceans, cultural barriers, and unsafe borders to share God's unconditional and life-changing compassion and love. Our work in Iran is one of the most challenging programs we have. It's also one of the most difficult places to exist as a Christian. We equip the local church in this country by shipping Bibles to pastors through an underground network of smugglers. Bibles have been illegal for over 30 years, and believers in Iran are imprisoned, harassed, discriminated against, and even killed for their faith. And yet people in Iran are hungry for Bibles. We have shipped over 75,000 Bibles to Iran, and Christianity is growing exponentially each year. 
few countries in the world are more heavily influenced by Buddhism than the nation of Myanmar. We've helped strengthen the church in Myanmar by meeting both the physical and spiritual needs in this country for over 10 years. Some of the greatest needs in Myanmar are strong Christian leadership and new church plants. We spent years translating and developing our ABC Discipleship and Leadership Program into the Burmese language, a program that includes over 330 lessons of comprehensive Bible training. Over 800 students have had the opportunity to study our ABC material through their local church, helping them develop into mature leaders who know God's Word and how to confidently reach their communities with the Gospel. We've empowered one local church by partnering to start a more intensive ministry training and church planning center. Several graduates are taking the gospel to the front lines of their nation by planting churches throughout the country where there wasn't a church before. Each year, we also help host a leadership conference in Yangon, Myanmar, attended by denominational leaders, pastors, and future church planters. This event allows us to not only help equip them to grow as leaders, but also foster a spirit of unity among the body of Christ. World Compassion has also equipped a local pastor in his church to start and operate an orphanage that is home to 53 children. Without this home, these children would have been at risk of becoming the next human trafficking victims. Together, we are creating a safe place for children to grow up in a strong Christian environment that will make a lasting impact on the next generation. Today, China is seeing some of the worst persecution since the Cultural Revolution. Pastors we work with in China have been threatened by the government, their churches raided by police, and many have been put in prison. Yet opposition has not stopped the church. We work in the underground church to raise up new leaders and help provide materials and training that strengthen believers throughout the country. Thousands of people are coming to Christ every day in China. And there's a desperate need for strong discipleship and sound leadership. Our two training programs, the ABC Discipleship Curriculum and China Mission School, or CMS, are ways we meet the need of church leaders across this vast nation. ABC focuses on giving students a comprehensive and in-depth understanding of the Bible to equip them as leaders and pastors in the underground church. And CMS empowers missionaries to be sent to unreached people groups throughout Asia and even the Middle East. World Compassion has already equipped over 3,500 trained leaders across China, with over 3,600 more currently being discipled. Hundreds of students are still on waiting lists to receive this in-demand training. In the last 60 years, many churches in Cuba were forced to close. Property was seized, and the faithful have continued meeting underground. Historically ruled by a dictator and a communist government, the country has experienced widespread poverty and oppression. However, in the last few decades, house churches have thrived and church planting has spread throughout the island nation like wildfire, with believers meeting in garages, living rooms, and back patios to dig into the Bible, worship, and come together in unity. World Compassion is currently helping to plant a number of churches and build the homes that will serve as house churches for new believers and Christians in the underground church. Pastors in Cuba recently voiced that they feel their country is more open now to reach people for Jesus than any time in the past 50 years. World Compassion wants to help seize that opportunity. Our work in Iraq since 2003 has built a network of relationships that have allowed us to offer aid during the most extreme humanitarian crisis of our era. The Syrian civil war and the violence of the Islamic State have caused millions of refugees to flee their homes, many of them women and children. In Iraq, we hold a legacy of providing aid to those in desperate need and working with government leaders to protect and advance the rights of Christians living in the nation. Today, we are also partnering to operate a safe house for women who have escaped ISIS slavery. Many of them have lived as sex slaves and some with children born from ISIS soldiers. What we help provide is the safety and care they need to reclaim their lives through counseling, skills training, English classes, and a community of women to help love them through their recovery. We are empowering them to move forward in life with the confidence, dignity, and freedom that comes from experiencing the love of Jesus. From the mountains of Iran and Iraq, to the impoverished neighborhoods of Cuba, 
To the busy streets of China and Myanmar, each World Compassion Program is specifically designed to help empower the local church to reach people for Jesus in nations hostile or restricted to the gospel. Together, we are equipping the church on the front lines of the Great Commission we all share. We would appreciate your prayers going forward. Uh, we're doing some things that are continually dangerous, and uh, we need protection, the Lord's hand. But I tell you what, I'm safer in the will of God in Iraq than you are in Longmont, Colorado, out of the will of God. That's the way that, that's the name of that tune, as they say. Uh, I want to talk today for a little while about the subject of hope. I wrote a book about 10 years ago, how many years, I can't even remember. But uh, I did a re research in the Bible and I became overwhelmed with the importance of that subject and that little word, hope. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, probably yours as well, when Paul says in the love chapter, and now abides faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these, is love. I'd like to ask a question to you, just to start out what I have to say. Um, over the years, how many sermons do you think you've heard on love? I've heard lots of them. And uh, we are all encouraged to grow in love. And we all know that our love can grow. It's a very important thing to develop as a fruit of the gospel in our lives. Uh, how many sermons have you heard on faith? I come from Tulsa, I've heard every sermon you can imagine <laughs> on the subject of faith. Brother Hagen and Oral and all the, all the rest of them, uh, we're kind of a faith capital in Tulsa. But, uh, you know, in the last 35 years, I remember two sermons on hope. It's totally forgotten. It's off the radar of the average believer. And I would suggest to you today, as I start saying what I have to say, one of the most important things you will ever do is to cultivate hope in your life. You'll be absolutely amazed at the results and what God does. Uh, let me give a definition of hope here real quick. I believe that hope is a confident expectation of the goodness of God. Would you say that with me? Hope is a confident expectation. Well, you ran out of gas. Try that. Try that again. Hope is a confident expectation of the goodness of God. Turn to somebody and say that. One of the things I did when I wrote my book is I did a lot of reading in the Bible. And I decided to find every verse on hope in the Bible. And I have put it in a little book I call Scriptures of Hope. We've got a book table out there. Uh, I have a book that I've written on hope that's out on the table. Uh, my uh, life story is out there, Storm Chaser, and other things. So uh, you can stop by the table after the service. But I, I want to read a few words uh, that open the book. And uh, here's what it says. These are my words. You might think the Bible is a book about heroes and holy men, super spiritual people who never failed and always did the right thing. But the truth is, the Bible features an all-too-human cast of failures who were transformed by the grace of God to accomplish great good. Think there's no hope for you? Just take a quick look at the people who changed their world. Moses, King David, and Paul wrote 19 books of the Bible and they were all murderers. Did you hear that? They were all murderers. 
uh, it's amazing when you read the book. Moses' brother Aaron in the Bible was Israel's first high priest, led the nation into worshiping idols. Samson, the strongest man in the world, had a fatal sexual addiction. Uh, Jonah, the prophet of God sent to evangelize the people of Nineveh, was so prejudiced against his audience that he got upset with God when they, when they repented. He wanted them all dead. Jacob was a mama's boy. Big mama's boy. Uh, favored by Rebecca. Um, there's so much in the Bible that gives me hope. When I see what God did with these people and realize that God has a plan for me, that really is exciting to me. And that's it's so exciting for all of us. And I, I, I'll leave it at that for this, for this time. But I, I, I want to commend to you the, the book. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the subject of hope in the next few moments. One of the greatest hope preachers I ever heard was Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts would come on television. Some of you can remember this in the old days. He'd point his finger at the camera and say to the television audience, something good is going to happen to you. That's hope. That's the heartbeat of hope. That's what hope is. And we know that God is working all things together for good to those that love him. There's two kinds of hope in the Bible. And part of it may be why hope has given short shrift by many ministers is the fact that uh, hope is wishing. And that's a part, I hope you can do this, I hope you can do that. Paul says in the book of Romans, I, I hope to come to you in Rome at such a, such a time. That's one of the meanings of hope. But the other meaning is the confident expectation of the goodness of God. And I'll tell you, if you live with a confident expectation of the goodness of God, you will not live an ordinary life because it will put a stamp on you and do something to you that uh, nobody else can do. I love it. Sometimes you see people uh, in Iraq. I, I noticed one thing that startled me when I first went there. When Saddam and his sons were alive, in Iraq and torturing the people, there were very few marriages. Very few men would talk to young women and ask them to marry them. And there were no children at all for quite a span of time. But as soon as we, our soldiers, removed Saddam from the scene, uh, the, the birth rate in Iraq absolutely exploded. Why? Because people had hope. The fact that Saddam was gone, his sons were gone, they had hope. They could see a future. They could see raising children, having a family. It was all important. There's a verse, and I, I hope we've got this uh, PowerPoint. Do you have some scriptures in a PowerPoint there? Uh, I, I want you to find the verse in Romans 15:13, And I want to look at this for a moment. Uh, it's a, a very important scripture. Uh, we'll go to, to John in a moment. But now, look at this. May the, this is probably the best verse on hope in the Bible. Now, may the God of hope, God is a God of hope. Would you say amen to, for that? He is a God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Notice where the comma is. In the uh, Hebrew and Greek language, there's no punctuation. So that has all been done by mankind as they spoke the word of God and was given to various, uh, various authors in the Bible. And I would like to read this verse to you one way and then another way. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, comma. All right? that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you change the comma, it changes the meaning. Now, may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace, comma, in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It changes the meaning of the verse. Just where you pause, where the comma is placed. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. What does it mean to abound? When you abound, say you have a glass of water and you fill, fill the glass to the top and it starts to spill over, uh, that's when you've got abundance. You've got more than the glass will hold. And God wants us to have so much hope that we are abounding, that we are overflowing constantly. And uh, if you can get a vision of that and how important it is, it'll change your life going forward. It's changing mine. I'm, I'm living in this whole area. You know, Jesus knew how to use hope more than anybody else. Remember when he came into town and Zacchaeus had climbed a tree? And he called him down and he invited himself to his house for a meal. When he was all done, Jesus walked out of the house and he said, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. When the woman caught in adultery, there's no more dramatic picture in the entire New Testament than the Pharisees bringing in this woman caught in the act, throwing her into the dust at Jesus' feet. And saying to him, the law of Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? Jesus stooped and started to write in the sand with his finger. When I was a boy, I heard my father preach, and it's original to him, not me. But he said, uh, what do you think Jesus was writing in the sand? He says he was probably writing the name of the Pharisees' girlfriends because they all got out of the temple right away. I thought that made pretty good sense, actually. <laughs> we don't know, of course. But he finally stands up, looks at the woman, says, Woman, where are your accusers? And she says, No man, Lord. Amazing. And he says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What hope to a woman who had been caught in adultery Wow, what a savior Jesus is. The last thing he said on the cross to the thief dying on his right hand, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're going to see God today. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, uh, in choosing his disciples, can you imagine what a risk it was for Jesus? Choosing 12 disciples and leaving the earth after th three years going to heaven, and depending on the gospel and Christianity spreading from 12 men to become a worldwide religious movement. I'd like to read to you a portion, if we can go now to John, uh, John's gospel, the first chapter, and I want to read these verses to you. Again the next day, John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Let's continue on. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when considered, or when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and I can't read that word, it's too dark. It, it remained with him that day. Now, it was about the ninth hour. One of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Peter to Jesus, first thing Andrew did. And the Bible says, when Jesus looked at Peter, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, or Peter the Rock. 
how would you like to be introduced to Jesus and all he does is look at you? Read, read the verse. The first thing Jesus did when, when Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, he, he looked at him. What do you think he saw? I tell you, he saw a lot of stuff in Peter. He saw a man who opened his mouth to change feet. He saw a man who was always rash and impetuous and jumping into stuff. Everybody in town knew who Peter was. That's the kind of man he was. And Jesus looked into Peter. The, the, the Greek word there in, in the verb looked is uh, very dramatic. It's like he looked into him. He peered into the heart and the soul of Peter. That's the first thing he did. And when Jesus looked into him, he says, you are and you shall be. Look at those two words, two phrases. That's the power of hope. You are what you are today, but you shall be what I'm going to make of you when my grace and my goodness fill your life. That's the essence of hope. Here it is, and Jesus is using it to motivate the man who's going to become his main disciple, main apostle, Peter. And if anybody ever had opportunity to uh, be discouraged and to make mistakes, it was Peter. All during the ministry of Jesus, Peter was with him, and one day when Jesus came down, and Peter was in, they were washing their nets in the boat, and Jesus said, would you lend your boat to me? And, and Peter said, certainly, pushed, pushed out from the shore. And any, any fisherman in the audience knows that when you're on water, your voice carries and is amplified by the water. And Jesus understood the power of that amplification to sit in the boat out in the lake and to talk to a huge crowd on the beach. And they could all hear him without a PA system and a microphone. Well, when he's done, he says to Peter, all right, let's push out into the deep and catch some fish. Can you imagine what Peter's thinking in his mind? Jesus, you're a preacher. I'm a fisherman. I've been fishing all night. There's not another fish left in this lake. But he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let go push out and let down the net. He gets a boat-sinking, net-breaking load of fish. He falls on his face before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Time and time again in Peter's life, there was reason to doubt that he was Peter the Rock. One of the familiar phrases that I love took place at the Last Supper. When Jesus says to Peter before they go out to the Mount, to Mount, uh, uh, the Mount of uh, whatever, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Gethsemane answered, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Do you know what happened that night? Peter followed Jesus after Judas led the high priests and the soldiers into the garden. And they hauled Jesus away to try him before Pilate and Herod. Peter followed in the darkness behind. A little girl saw him and said, uh, your accent betrays you. You're a Galilean. I know you're a friend of this man. Another girl says something similar. And the third man is a soldier. He says, but I saw you in the garden with him. Do you know... Luke is the one that records this, and it's quite amazing. The Bible says that uh, no sooner had, or when, G, when Peter spoke to the soldier, he cursed. He used very strong, foul language. In other words, he said something like, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. He's not a friend of mine. And Luke is the only gospel that records this phrase. It says, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Have you ever read that in your Bible? I was studying on the subject of hope one day, and I came to that phrase. 
And Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and I remembered that back in John, the first thing Jesus did was look at Peter. And when he looked at Peter, he said, you are Simon, you are a weak man, the son of Jonas, but I'm going to make you a rock. And so, what do you think was in the look when Jesus turned at Peter? Some people said, well, he was probably fed up and angry with him. No. I think Jesus looked at Peter the same way that he looked at him when Peter was introduced to him by his brother Andrew. He was saying, you are Simon, but you shall be called Peter the Rock. Don't you like that? I love that. That's beautiful to me. We are, but we shall be. I'm 75 years of age and God's not done with me yet. I, I mean that. I'm having as much enjoyment in ministry as I ever have. My son is taking over the ministry and I'm supposed to be superannuated and kicked upstairs, but I, I, I've got too much in me to just stay in one place and do nothing. In fact, I don't read uh, retirement in the Bible. I don't know if you can find it. If you can, uh, talk to me after the service. I love the story of Jesus just before he went to the cross to die. Up on the mount, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that Jesus was weeping over the sin of the people in Jerusalem because they had rejected him. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus was the son of God? crying over a city that had rejected him? Why? Because God gave them the opportunity to choose. And I'll tell you one thing about hope. The most important thing you will ever do is choose to hope. It is not a feeling. It is not something that, that will, will do you good. It is that. It's all those things. But there's something far more. There's a power that God has given you and me to choose. And there comes a time you've got to choose to hope. And I trust that will happen to everyone listening to my voice this morning, that you will make a cho choice to hope. And I'll tell you, the scripture and the verses on hope are powerful in the Bible, just powerful. Stephen Covey is one of my favorite motivational writers, and he wrote this in one of his books. He says, if you were to ask me what one subject, one theme, one point seemed to have the greatest impact on people, what one great idea resonated deeper in the soul than any other? If you were to ask what one idea was most practical, most relevant, most timely, regardless of circumstance, I would answer quickly, without any reservation, and with the deepest conviction of my heart and soul that we are free to choose. He said that next to life itself, the power to choose is your greatest gift. And God has sanctified that ability and he's allowed you to choose. And we are constantly in life making choices. But I'd like to ask you a question. You know, there's, a, there's something called self-talk that all of us practice. You talk to yourself a lot quietly. Nobody can hear the words, but in your mind, you're thinking about yourself. And uh, I, I, what, what, what do you say about yourself? Jesus said to Peter, you are and you shall be. Do you dare say that to yourself? I am, but I shall be. You may... You may say, I'll never break free of this habit. I just can't break loose of it. And God says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You may say, I don't deserve another chance. God says, the blood continually cleanses from all sin. You say, nothing ever works out for me. 
And God says all things work together for good. Hallelujah. You say, I don't look good enough for someone to want to marry. God says you are his workmanship created in his image. Don't run down his workmanship. You say, I'll never get well. And Jesus says, by his stripes, you're healed. You say, I'm a single mom. I can't raise the kids by myself without a husband. And God says, you can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. You say, my professor makes a fool of me for believing. In the classroom, God says, men will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You say, the nation's lost, what can I do? And we're coming to a very, very important election this week. The whole world's going to be watching America right now. We're making choices as a people. The nation's lost, there's nothing I can do. And God says to you what he said to Gideon, go in your power and save your nation. You say, I feel so alone in the world, and God says nothing can separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. You say, and God says, listen to what God says about you, not what you say about yourself usually. Give the Lord credit to speak his goodness into your life. I want to tell you one thing, and I want to close with this idea, is the fact that there's something contagious, something spontaneous about hope. You ever talk to somebody and say, how are you doing? And they end up giving you an organ recital. My heart's bad, my liver's bad, my kidneys are bad, everything's bad. I call it an organ recital, that's what it is. And, uh, or you ask somebody else, something good's going to happen to me, or Roberts would say. I remember hearing Oral teach when I traveled with him in the Crusades. I would lead song service in, in the Crusades, and uh, I remember him telling the story of him going to school the first day, first grade, and he had a terrible t stuttering problem. He couldn't talk at all, and as a six-year-old boy, first day in school, the teacher wanted to know everybody's name and something significant about them, and she went, went around the class, and she came to Oral, and all Oral could do was like this, and the teacher started to laugh at him. The students in the class started to laugh at him. And he ran out of school and ran home that night. And his brother, older brother Vaden, took Oral aside. He'd been in the class. He'd seen what happened. And he said to Oral, Oral, one day you're going to talk and you won't stutter. Oral became probably one of the greatest men using words that I've ever heard in my life. The greatest extemporaneous preacher that I've heard. Well, what a gift that God gave him. But how his brother lifted him up. You know, I, I don't know how you talk to your kids. But if you're a parent in this service this morning, one of the most important things you can do for your kids is give them hope. They're always saying, Daddy, watch this. Mommy, watch me do this. They want your favor, they want your approval. And yet sometimes that is not forthcoming. And yet your family is hungry for hope coming out of your mouth. I remember as a boy growing up in school, my father was a pioneer pastor up in Canada. And I'd bring home a straight A report card and he'd say, well, you can do better next time. I didn't know what that was, but whatever. I never ever heard him say, son, I love you. Son, you're doing something important. Uh, nothing. In fact, I remember clearly, 34 years of age in the city of Minneapolis, I'm taking my group 
living sound Africa for a year. And I stop off to see my mother and father in their mobile home in Minneapolis. And my dad stood there with tears rolling down his cheeks. I'd never seen him cry. He said, Terry, I'm so proud of you. I can tell you the color of the wallpaper in the mobile home. I had been so, so thirsty for those words. Never heard the words. Parents, you hold the keys to your children. What do you think happened when parents mobbed Jesus and they brought their children and they wanted him to put them on his lap? What do you think Jesus said to those kids? You ever wondered about that? Mary climbs up into his lap and Jesus says to her, Mary, God has given you a special voice. I want you to train that voice because one day you're going to bless a lot of people. Johnny climbs into Jesus' lap and Jesus says, Johnny, I know that things are hard without your father at home. Your mother's trying to make do for you. But God has given you a gift in your hands. And one day you're going to be a builder. Spinning hope into the hearts of children. What an opportunity. I have nine grandchildren. Well, eight and one on the way. My youngest daughter's pregnant with a little boy, and that'll be the ninth. And uh, I want the opportunity of speaking hope into those kids. It's a sacred responsibility. Your parent, your kids, your grandchildren are hungry for someone to compliment them, someone to say you're doing well and you can do better, whatever. But you know, just give them hope. I want to go through a list of scriptures now to close off what I have to say, and uh, I'm going to go back to Romans. 15.13 again, if we can bring that up. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, comma, that you may abound in hope. If you take this one idea out of this service, I will have done God's job for me this morning. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you can abound in hope you can choose, and I pray that you will choose today before you walk out of here because that choice of hope will bless everyone in your life. And the fact is that you can abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. The old, the old King James says, they wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. But the word wait there in Hebrew is the word hope. They that hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then there's the beautiful verse in the Psalms. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I have two angels that follow me. One is called goodness and the other one's called mercy. And they're with me as I go. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Isn't that beautiful? They're following you all the days of your life. Hallelujah. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised... Is faithful. That's the initial word there in the Greek. It's hope. Another verse, Psalm 27, 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the lives of my children. I will see the goodness of the Lord in my ministry and what God has called me to do around the world. 
I will see the goodness of the Lord. What a hope. 2 Corinthians 3.12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Tell everybody that you're a man and woman of hope. Now let me finish with this. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the one verse, well, there's other verses, but this one particularly puts faith and hope in the same verse. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. In my book, I talk about how hope is an architect that draws the design of a building. Some architect created this structure on paper first. Faith is a contractor. He's the man who builds the building. But hope is the one who gives the ideas. And you, you can't live without hope and faith together, working in harmony. Dare to believe that you can hope in the Lord. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes here for a moment. I want to ask, no one looking around, please. I want to ask a question. How many of you this morning, I'm not asking you to, to give your heart to Jesus today. Most of you have already done that. But I am asking you a very, very important question. How many of you will decide to hope? Would you raise a hand throughout this audience? You're going to choose to hope. You're going to decide to hope. You're going to put your hope in the Lord. Raise a hand throughout the building, if you would. Yes, I see hands raised, everyone. Would you stand with me, please? I want to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to join me in that prayer, and I, I want it to be a, a prayer full of hope. Let's all pray together. Out loud, if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the God of hope. And today, I am choosing to hope. I've decided that I will put my hope in you. And I will grow in hope. And I will grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Thank you for this decision. Remind me of it by the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.